dark and dusty drapes Let in some light Tell the billboy come and get my trunk Cause I'm leaving here tonight Hey everybody, this is Zachary Scott Johnson, host of Meryl Streep and the Movies with Zachary Scott Johnson and Meryl McNally. Before we get started and I roll today's episode, I wanted to mention that, as usual, we forgot to mention who our next Six Degrees person is. The next person is Eddie Murphy. If you would like to play along with us, please email us at MerylStreepPodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's MerylStreepPodcast at gmail.com. You can also find that in the show notes. Thanks, and here's the show. Hey everybody, welcome to a new episode of Meryl Streep in the Movies with Zachary Scott Johnson and Meryl McNally. How are you this afternoon, Meryl McNally? I'm good, Zach. How are you? Long time good. no talk. Long time no talk. Yeah, how's how have things been going? Good. Whirlwind. Crazy. Even though we're still, you know, technically in in uh, quarantine here in here in New Mexico, everything's still shut down, but things have been very busy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about you? Yeah, it feels like life is coming back, you know? Right? The the you know, it's the first of spring and it's happening. COVID's coming to an end, everyone's getting vaccinated. Woohoo. Oh, yeah, I mean like things are things are changing. It feels like uh feels like life is you know starting to resume. Go back to normal. But well, what have you been watching since last I saw you? Anything interesting? I know. I feel like I've, I feel like I've seen some stuff, but I can't remember what it is because that's what, that's what's happening with my brain lately. It's on overload and we haven't talked in what, maybe six weeks? Yeah, something like that probably. Brutal. What, what have I watched? What have I, oh, I've been, we've talked about this a little. I've been watching Alan V. Farrow. Yes. We texted about that one a little bit. Yeah. Brutal. Um, I watched Murder Among the Mormons on Netflix. Oh, I'm so, what was your opinion on that? I've been waiting. Um, you know what? The way they advertise it and the first episode makes you think it's a big Mormon conspiracy. I mean, it is called Murder Among the Mormons and that is not what it is. Totally interesting, worth watching. I won't give anything away. And then the television event of the year, I watched the Meghan Markle Harry Oprah interview and had my mind blown a few times. How was that? I did not watch that. How was that? Oh, it was good. <laughs> it, was, it was, they, they dropped some truth bombs and uh, it was Earth. intense. Yeah. 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 I mean, first of all, I don't think most of us, the average person realizes that like when you join an institution like that, your life is truly not your own. Like right. she had her keys and her passport and her driver's license take, not taken away, but she handed them over. So, you know, that's a lot for an American. Yep. <laughs> um, and, you know, there, there were some definite revelations about, um, you know, racism within the institution, which is, not surprising, but but some of it, yeah, like asking what color your child's skin is going to be is pretty intense. Right. Even Oprah was like, who said that to you? Right. 
yeah. emphasis on the T. They're living their they're living their truth. I'm on board. I'm fully supportive. Yeah, it's like the the monarchy is is facing a reckoning for sure. It's interesting because it felt like the crown was going in a direction. Like I guess we haven't we haven't gotten to the we've gotten to the early Diana years. I wonder if the next series is going to be maybe the controversial one um, in terms of their perception. Because I mean, there's been some somewhat damning stuff about the monarchy in general over the four seasons of the crown so far, but nothing that's like not bounce backable. You know what I mean? Like they're able to, they don't come off completely terribly. They just come across a little bit outdated and you know, whatever, but yeah, there's some real reckoning I think going on. And I think these kids are shaking things up. Yeah. Big time. And you know what? I have to say the most beautiful consequence of this whole thing is Piers Morgan st- storming off yeah. the set of Good Morning Britain and uh, quitting. Like, I'm on board. So, <laughs> and, um, you know, Alex Beresford's dealing of that whole situation was really beautiful. Like, I think the it's interesting to see how everyone is reacting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's very telling, all, almost more so than the interview itself. So yeah, it's it's really interesting. I thought it was interesting that Harry confirmed that while the crown is fictional, it does sort of capture how they are a sort of slave to the institution. Right. Yeah. It's so fascinating and juicy. Like we're gonna feel the ripple effects of that interview. And I also realized how much I've missed Oprah. <laughs> I just like her voice is comforting. Everything about her is comforting. Comforting. I just I miss her. <laughs> Every couple of years she swings back around. You know, a couple of years ago it was that incredible Golden Globe speech where everybody thought that she was basically announcing her presidential run. Um, <laughs> now it's this, yeah. Where I've I've seen that too, where people were like, her interview skills are pretty unparalleled. Like she's just really, really good at getting people to like share things. You know that that's it. That's an art. That's an art form. Interviewing somebody effectively. Yeah. For sure. I think the only thing, and it was probably, hey, listen, and I'm not claiming I could do it better because I absolutely could not. Oprah is a goddess. I think she got excited about like, or curious about things that they were saying. And she would like interrupt them in the middle of like really juicy, good thoughts. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it was a time constraint thing too. But I was like, Oprah, no. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, just wait two more seconds. Just let him finish his sentence. <laughs> it's it's tough because the the interview thing is you let them speak, like you don't interrupt at all. And in fact, you kind of wait, you give them time. And sometimes that sentence that like hanging in the air makes them say more than they ordinarily would. But that's right. kind of comfortable if you're actually the person doing that list and especially if you already know the person and you feel like you want to have a normal conversation with them or you want them to feel close to you or feel like you, they can open up to you that distance is it's a really delicate balance you know yeah and you could tell she was just so compelled to ask the next question yeah no it was it was good stuff um and i'm trying to think of any like scripted I yeah, feel like I've been watching like scripted fictional stuff, but I can't, I can't, I can't think of it right now. How about you? 
I actually, I was thinking about this earlier and I'm thinking in terms of, again, for the sake of our podcast, like some of the award stuff, I did watch Nomad, Nomadland. Have you watched that oh, yet? Yeah. No, I have not. Not yet. Oh, I watched, I care a lot. That's what I watched. We can talk about that uh, in a minute. How was Nomadland? It's incredible. It's so good. And, you know, I've never seen a movie quite like this and I've watched a lot of movies, you know? Yeah. The thing is, like, it's really, it's Francis McDormand and David Strathairn, whose part is smaller than I, I guess I was expecting. But everybody else in the movie, actually David Strathairn's son is in it, but he has like one line in it, you know. And um, everybody else in the movie is a real nomad. Like, they're not, act- they're not actors. That's who they are. And um, so it's just got this feel of, it's almost like a, document it kind of this interesting documentary it takes its time it's so beautifully shot there's just i mean it will make you want to get in an rv and travel the country you know what i mean like it's one of those movies that is just so beautiful to look at um it's just really good it 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 is not a tough movie to watch in really any way like there's no reason to for anybody to kind of fear this movie or feel, you know, it's not really trigger warning or anything for anybody. It's, it moves slowly, I guess, but it's, it's just great. It's really, really good. And Frances McDormand's incredible. She makes you believe she's a nomad. She's unbelievable. She's just so good. It's, it's another one of those roles that like, I, I was thinking, oh yeah, Meryl could have played this role or, you know, Glenn Close could have played this role, but there's like a Frances McDormand thing, you know, mm-hmm. where she is the right person for a specific type of role. And certainly the case here, like she's just so good in this as always. Other than that, I, I was trying to think of any of the like award stuff. Uh, I've watched part of One Night in Miami, but not enough to really like speak intelligently. on. I don't think I've watched anything else that's like up for awards since last you and I spoke. Um, I've been watching more TV stuff. I, I've been watching that show Billions, which is the Showtime one with Damon Lewis and Paul Giamatti. Did you ever watch that show? Yeah, I watched the first season and I didn't continue, not because I didn't like it. I just like got, got busy. I, I enjoyed the first the first season. I um who's the other actor in it? Dame, Damian Dame Lewis. Lewis. Yeah, from I I'm a big fan. I just I I really ever ever since the Foresight saga and Band of Brothers, he 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 can do no wrong in my eyes. I will watch anything he's in. Yeah. It's good. It's now gotten to the point I'm in like season four. I think I've just started season four um, where I, it feels kind of like the wire or something where I don't understand 90% of what they're talking about at this point. <laughs> like it's so technical. And so like, it's about, uh, it's about like people who hedge fund managers and like all sorts of like, you know, business stuff and tech stuff. And, um, but I still keep watching. It's still interesting enough. It keeps me engaged. There's enough going on. Um, and then I, I went back and I'm really slowly making my way through this. I've re-watched uh, the first season of Bloodline, that Netflix show with Sissy Spacek and Ben Mendelsohn. And yeah. really, really great. I had watched most of the first season and kind of given up. And now I'm determined to like actually make my way through all three seasons. But I started at the beginning again. And it's, there's something about this show that it feels like you can't watch too many episodes of it. You know, I don't know why. But yeah. You know, make my. I mean, did you ever start that show? That's another one that I watched the first season and then didn't continue with it for various reasons, and so it's like it's like oh for two. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I liked I, it. I liked it a lot. 
I, I'm with you though. I mean, I, I had started, I had watched the first season of billions and given up and then came back a couple years later too. I feel like bloodline in particular, every review that you see of it uses the word slow burn. Like it's just one of those movies or sorry, one of those shows where it's, you know, it takes its time and it really isn't a fast moving anything. And you get to know these characters really deeply as an actor those are incredible roles and like something that you get to like flex so much of like your skill set in. Um, as a viewer, you really have to be fully engaged with it. You have to like put down your phone and, you know, like actually watch what's happening because it's not fast. It's not so much plot driven. It's very intricate. It's very, you know. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Know. Yeah. So anyway, so how did you feel about uh, the Rosamund Pike one? I forget what it's called. I care a lot. Oh my God. Um, it's, um, I, it's, I loved it. I, people do have mixed feelings about it because it's pretty, there's no one to root for. Like everyone is despicable. It's a pretty dark comedy, right? It is. The first half of the movie is quite, or maybe the first third is really challenging to watch because you you see how the guardian conservatorship system in the country can be abused and it's not i don't think it's an exaggeration or inaccurate <laughs> um, because you know there's an assumption when you go into a courtroom that attorneys and doctors as professionals are doing the best for their their clients um, and judges sort of take that on faith. So there's a real opportunity to abuse the legal system if you're not, um, if you're not on the up and up. So it kind of highlights that, but um, it's, <laughs> Rosamund Pike is um, disturbingly good. She's always really underrated. She's so, so good. good. Yeah. yeah. Um, Peter Dinklage is great in it, but you know who really stole the movie for me was Diane Weist. Oh, of she's course. a genius and um it's absolutely if you're on the fence about it at all just watch it for her performance because it is 100 worth watching nice yeah. um I, people don't want to listen to us talk about other stuff as much but i wanted to ask you did you ever go back to your honor the brian cranston one did you ever finish that up i did so i I watched like the first three episodes and then my parents continued to watch it. And then I watched the last episode with them. So I missed the center episodes, but I did finish it. So I do know what happened. All right. <laughs> you, missed, you missed a whole lot, really. I did. I did. <laughs> do you have an overall impression of that? Or is it hard to say missing the middle? Well, I do. I don't want to, I mean, it's sort of a new series, so I don't want to give anything away, but I've, I found, well, the show itself was quite stressful for me. I didn't continue watching it. It has very much, it has a similar vibe to Breaking Bad in that you're watching a good man go wrong and he just keeps going wrong and just keeps escalating and it's so wrong. And then it has such a sad ending and you're like, oh, and the ending is so abrupt. Yeah. And maybe it doesn't feel that way if you've seen the rest of it, but like. No, I think it does. That 10th episode yeah. really threw me. Yeah. So yeah, that was my general impression of what I saw. What did, what did you think having seen the whole thing? 
I mean, I really, I liked it. It was so compelling. It was one of those shows that, you know, each episode made you want to watch the next one, or at least it did for me. I'm totally with you on the stressful thing too. Those early episodes um, in particular, it, it is less stressful, I think, as it goes on. You can yeah. feel like the news tightening, but it's really like the actual act of what happened, the like tragedy of what sets everything in motion that is stressful about this. And the fact that it happens both to a child and because of a child, essentially. And after a while, it doesn't become about that anymore. It becomes about the adults in the situation. Mm -hmm. So there's something less intense at that point. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it is really interesting that Brian Cranston like returned to that well, like you say, of the, the anti-hero thing. You know, it really is... It's a different guy for sure, but it like that's what he's known for at this point. It's surprising that he was, it's like Liam Neeson signing up for another action movie. You're like, oh, you're going to do that? Okay. <laughs> so true. I have to say, Brian Cranston, I mean, listen, everybody knows he's he's brilliant, but like when I saw him on net, in Network on Broadway, I've just never seen anything like it. Hmm. I've, I've never, I, the amount of energy and granted, that that role in network is bonkers in and of itself, right? But to do that eight shows a week and yeah. put that because he, I mean, basically his his mental his mental frame of mind deteriorates over the course of the show, and he's basically driven into madness. I have never seen anything like it. And I, when you watch something like Your Honor or Breaking Bad, there's elements of that in it, right? But he he manages, you know, there's like a slow burn over the course of the season. Mm -hmm. To do it so intensely eight shows a week, the man is um, a, a genius. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when I when I said that about him returning to that well and used the, the Liam Neeson thing, it's mm -hmm. Like Liam Neeson does that better than anybody. So does Brian Cranston. They're like the best at what they do. So it's not really surprising that he would return to that well. It just felt like, I don't know. I guess I assumed that about him, that he would want to do something else. But he has. He did yeah. Trumbo. He did the, um, what was it? He did one of the presidents. Uh, I think it was Lyndon Johnson. He did like a HBO thing. I don't know. He's certainly I think we. I think we need to start doing... Every, everything he's done is fantastic. Moving forward, we need to do better for Brian Cranston. We need to figure out because he's he's so dynamic. I don't I don't think the film and TV industry is has taken as good advantage of him post Breaking Bad as they could be. Right there, you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. Did you watch the Golden Globes? Did you ever get around to that? I didn't because, well, you know, I'm at my parents' house right now and they don't enjoy the award ceremonies at all. And so I TiVo'd them and was going to watch, but I just read so many reviews about how awkward it was and like in the hit or miss, it was more of a miss. And I just, I didn't have the time or the energy. It had its moments. I mean, the one thing that I'll say about it is if you uh, have any political concerns, just skip Sasha Baron Cohen's speeches and you'll be fine. <laughs> there, was, there was essentially no other, like Tina Fey and Amy Poehler made a point out of not doing any political content at all. There was none. That's and nice. most, most of the, uh, most of the, uh, what Mark Ruffalo did, but it wasn't like an anti-Trump thing so much as like, we all need to come together. I don't think he ever said Trump or anything. Um, he just basically- It's gotta be it, refreshing to be like, now we're at a point where we can 
not talk about politics and it's right. okay. <laughs> right. Asha Baron Cohen couldn't stop himself because in Borat, there's a whole Rudy Giuliani thing. So he kind of, you know, he went there, but he's really the only one. Um, it was kind of hit or miss. I was just mostly surprised by, it wasn't hugely surprising in terms of the choices, but like Andra Day won Best Actress. Who yeah. saw that one coming, you know? Right. Yeah. Good wins. There were a couple like that. Yeah, I can't, I guess nothing else is jumping out to me in the moment, but there were a few surprises in there. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll see how things shake out. But uh, anyway, yeah, no, no real Meryl content there. She wasn't nominated, even though James Corden somehow was. Listen, and then the whole, I mean, the fact that they don't have any Black voters. I mean, come on. That, well, and see, now that was, of course discussed ad nauseum but that was about their you know that was about them yeah. that wasn't political that was about their own organization but um, yeah and and i you know i think there's so much um there's so much glad handing and schmoozing that goes behind on behind the scenes and um you know i i think emily in paris has been a point of controversy you know that it got mm-hmm. nominated over um i may destroy you which is yes. you know so I have not watched it and I need to, it's on my list, but you know, for all intents and purposes, I'm fairly sure it's one of the, the best shows of, of its year. So, you know, they've got some work to do, but don't we all? Yeah. One thing I would recommend to anybody listening who hasn't yet, uh, YouTube, the Jane Fonda uh, speech. Yes. It was really great. As was, as was that montage before her, we, you know, the like career retrospective thing before she came out and got that award was really beautifully done. It was really cool. I'll take a look at that. Yeah. The rest of it probably is skippable. You know, there isn't anything groundbreaking that, you know, you haven't heard about at this point anyway. So, all right, shall we dive in? Let's do it. We're doing the Bridges of Madison County from 1995. Do you want to start us out with a summary, which I would think would be easier for this one than a lot of her movies. I know, right? Meryl Street plays Francesca, an Italian woman who who meets and and marries her husband, who had been um, he had been stationed in Italy during the war, and they got married and moved to Iowa. Had two children and had been living on the farm. Her kids are now teenagers. And her husband and her two children go away for a weekend to, um, I think, a state fair to show um, the daughter's prize steer. And she has four days to herself on the farm. And and while she's there, a photographer from National Geographic, uh, Robert Kincaid, played by Clint Eastwood, who also directs the film, uh, shows up asking directions to a bridge because he's photographing the bridges of Madison County <laughs> for um, uh, for the National Geographic. And she it's difficult to give directions because there are no road signs. So she offers to take him and it starts them on a very brief but intense love affair. Um, and that's all giveaway. I mean, this movie is so old at this point. We are definitely going to talk about the end. So if you don't want spoilers, obviously go watch it first. But the movie really deals with the emotional upheaval of, of finding someone that, that you connect with so deeply and having to let them go. Yep. 
Yep. Only thing I want to add to that, uh, because it affects things in subtle ways, is that it's said 1965. Well, and there's kind of this bounce back because, you know, again, spoilers. Set in present the, day and then right. we flashback. Yeah. Right. Right. So again, spoilers from this point forward. Um, the movie actually starts, it's about 15 minutes or so before we see Meryl Streep and even longer until we see Clint Eastwood. Uh, and because it starts out with her adult, now adult children in present day, meaning 1995 when the film was made, um, after Meryl Streep's and the father's uh, characters have both passed away and they're going through her items. And that's when they discover the affair that their mother had had these years ago with a National Geographic reporter, which of course they knew nothing about, really nobody besides the two of them knew anything about. So let's see. So what? let's start with your previous experience with this film i know you've seen this movie before when did you first see this movie how did how does it hold up for you all of that i feel like i saw parts of it when it first came out because my mom loved it obviously i don't think there's a mother in the country from the 90s that probably didn't love this movie i think i was in law school i decided to revisit it as like a fully formed adult and and watched it and really loved it and then i read the book after I had seen the film, uh, you know, it's been so long. I remember that the book is good, but different in ways. I feel like I recall in the book, he's, he's really, really into jazz. Like jazz music is a theme throughout. And I could be wrong about that. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. I haven't seen it in years. This was my first time revisiting it. It's probably been about 10 years. I loved it more this round than I did the last time, which I loved a lot then. How about you? I don't remember when I saw it the first time. I feel like this is not one that I saw when it came out. I mean, I guess that makes sense because I would have been, you know, 13. This would not have interested yeah. me at 13. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think it's because I probably didn't see it for a while because this in my head, because of the book, it was the like you just said a minute ago, this was like the book that moms loved. You know, this was, this had that, thing of this is a chick flick a you know romantic <laughs> drama whatever which um is interesting if you think of it because it's also a clint eastwood movie and he's very much like the opposite of a quote-unquote chick flick and but either way this is not one that i thought oh i'm gonna love this movie and um so i think it it was a while into her like me discovering her movies that this one was like okay I'll, I'll finally watch this one um i have to say she's so good in this movie and this movie is really good it's it's like it's so good like capital so <laughs> i mean it's shockingly good and i think it's one of those movies that like when you see it you realize how good it is but if you haven't seen it, there's something about it that to a lot of people does not sound appealing. I asked Megan a couple of weeks ago if she wanted to watch this when you and I were first going to record. And I think her response was, no, I'm not in my 50s. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that. <laughs> like yeah, totally. About this movie if you haven't seen it. But if you have seen it, you realize how good she is, how really good Clint Eastwood is in this movie. And how good... And it's, it's like the two of them this whole time. It's really, really good. And do you know the third the third star of the film is truly the script? Yeah. I, I, I mean, that, that writing between the two of them is so nuanced and captures 
all of the emotional colors, uh, you know, it's really beautifully written. Yeah, it's an opportunity to watch really, I mean, the giant chunk of this movie is just the two of them on a farmhouse. I mean, you can see why this was adapted within the last couple of years into a musical on Broadway because oh, yeah. it 100% would work for the stage. I mean, I haven't seen it or anything. I haven't even heard the music or anything, but of course this would work, you know. Um, it's just set on this farm in Iowa, which is, you know, I live in Minnesota. We border, you know, I know these people. It's, yep. it's a lot down of course 1965 is a different story but um there there is just so much of this worldview that is kind of inhabited in this movie that is i don't know it's just it's it's just so well done it, it gets everything right really yeah i think the broader canvas of 19 you know 1965 iowa is that you know you're talking about conservative america where right. where the family unit is sacred and anyone who's having an affair or getting divorced is really socially ostracized. And so that's, that's the environment that this affair is happening in over these four days. And, and Clint Eastwood's character, Robert Kincaid, really, he comes in as, as an outsider who has lived a really carefree do what you want kind of lifestyle and he can't quite wrap his head around the social dynamics and and the pressure that she, that she's feeling and then on top of that she's you know a mom and whether or not she's going to put herself first or her children first is a real struggle yeah well and not to jump there is one thing um on the DVD, there's like a half hour behind the scenes featurette mm-hmm. thing. And it interviews, you know, basically everybody involved with the movie. And the the screenwriter said two things that I thought were really interesting. Actually, he might have only said one. And I think the other one was said by the editor. Um, but, you know, what he said was at the end of this movie, not to jump to the end of this movie, but she makes a choice at the end of the movie, basically, whether or not she's going to stay in her marriage or whether or not she's going to go off with Robert Kincaid. Obviously, one of them is what she's used to, what society says she is supposed to do, which is stay with her family. The other would be pursuing her own happiness, pursuing her own dreams with Robert Kincaid. And um, what the screenwriter said, I was surprised he was kind of young, at least whenever this you know documentary here was made. And he said, you know, all of his female friends who were under the age of 30 really hated the book because of the ending. They wanted her to go with him. And (laughs) it was a very, it was very much a like, you know, to women who were 30 or, you know, younger, that was an option. That was something that, you know, you you pursue your dreams, you, you go for it. Whereas in 1965 in a small town in Iowa, no, that was not going to be the way things were going to go. And so like there was this kind of split where people, you know, you were either on one side of the fence or the other, which of course they kind of play with a lot with her grabbing the door handle. You wonder if she's going to go out. That's really kind of a, they both Merrill and Clint Eastwood in the thing were talking about how much they loved kind of messing with people's minds in that moment and referred to it as a great red herring because you just didn't know if they were going to detour from the book and she was going to get out of that car or, you know, uh, uh, what does happen, yeah. which is she 
days and it's just this like should I shouldn't I thing but anyway that so I I thought that was a really really interesting comment that you know it was very much a of the time in 1965 you just wouldn't have made that choice or she wouldn't have made that choice and you know what I I understand that because that's sort of how I watch the movie I'm like yeah you should have just gone <laughs> um and but I think um I think the screenplay and Clint Eastwood do a really good job of framing out the environment in the time period so that it hold the, the movie still holds up today because they were so clear about the social pressures she was facing. Right. Um, so that you can really put yourself in her shoes because it's just not like that now. Right. Um, yeah, I would love, man, I would love to talk to, the screenwriter is Richard uh, Lagravenes. I'm not sure I'm saying his name right. Um, I would love to pick his brain. He's written some really, really great films. What else has um, he done? Well, he did Behind the Candelabra for HBO. Oh, wow. okay. And um, Unbroken, mm -hmm. the Angelina Jolie film. Yeah, Water for Elephants, The Horse Whisperer. Oh, and wow. the mirror cool. has two faces with Barbara Streisand. Yeah, so he's done he's done quite a bit. And then he's done things like a, a little princess and the Fisher King. He's he's oh he's wow. Fisher King. Accomplished and diverse, very diverse. Yeah. Well, they they talked about, and actually if you go to the Wikipedia page, it also talks about um this was when it was in development. Spiel, Steven Spielberg had the rights to this. And I think it was, I think it was his company that made this movie. I think it was Amazon that made this movie. Okay. And um, Clint was attached basically from the beginning. I mean, there may have been, you know, not right at the beginning, but he was basically attached from the beginning to play the role, but not as a director. It was going to be Sidney Pollack who was going to direct. And there was somebody who wrote a, who wrote a script and then they had to bow out for whatever reason. And then Spielberg decided he was going to do it after Schindler's List. He had just finished that. And he thought this would be a nice change of pace for him. And um, so then they had kind of some changes with the script. He was the one who kind of put the device of like having the kids discover her diaries. And so then they got... Um, Spielberg decided he wasn't going to direct it. He moved on to, I think his next one after that would have been either Amistad or the, the Jurassic Park sequel. So he brought in Bruce Beresford, who did like um, Driving Miss Daisy and uh, Crimes of the Heart and Tender Mercies and stuff like that. And he got Alfred, I don't know if it's Alfred Yuri, but he, he's the playwright who did Driving Miss Daisy. They did another draft of the script and then okay. they kind of, all these versions of the script and they all were like no we like that original one and so they like went back to that guy who'd, who'd really written the original one basically um and by that point they were just like clint do you want to direct this you're already in it and he was like at that point he was pretty immersed in it and so he decided to direct it it was a really really wise choice because yeah. i think I think one of Clint Eastwood's gifts as a director, he has many, but I think one of his gifts is capturing the nuance of human emotion, like true human emotional responses to, to really difficult life events. I mean, you think about, um, even in films like Mystic River and, you know, that's so, so dark 
I don't know. There's just something so vulnerable and human about his work. Million Dollar Babies like that too. I, I think he was an excellent pick for this. I do, I agree. Yeah, this and it has there's something about his crew to it, like his director of photography, like they do certain things. Although I 100% could have seen Steven Spielberg and actually Sidney Pollack, I could see him doing it too. Spielberg would have, you know, knocked this out of the park too in a similar way. I don't know that it would have changed that much with Spielberg in there. Um, but yeah, Clint Eastwood was the right choice. There were certain things that I think, actually there was a compliment that Merrill paid him where, you know, it gets into, this thing about he was she felt like he was really good in the in the like the one fight scene they have after they kind of like consummate mm -hmm. um and they realize that he's leaving and you know it's basically like the morning after and she's i know there's a lot going on it's very layered you don't know if she's regretting everything but they have this kind of fight in the kitchen and she was saying he was really really good in that scene and there were um basically it was like he had these reactions that it was like you know you could see him winning or at the very least being up for awards for his acting performance but when she saw the movie he had mostly taken his own best work out because it suited the overall movie better to not have those in there like he was saying more with his face basically and he didn't need these like scenery chewing things in there and he was smart enough and his ego was in a, you know, a good enough place that he was able to take some of his best acting out of the movie for the betterment of the movie. That's the most amazing. I just, I really love him. <laughs> I mean, that takes, that takes some serious perspective and honoring the greater artwork, right? Yeah. That's magic. Ugh, yeah. So good. And seriously, that's one of my, that's my favorite scene in the movie for sure. Is it? Yeah, because of the nuance and the layers. Like you imagine, there's so much insecurity in that moment because even though you've had a passionate affair, you don't really know the person, right? They yeah. don't really know each other. And the, insecu the, the insecurity that comes up for her thinking, is this just something he does? Is it impor as important to him as it is to me? What's gonna happen now? I've just basically blown up my whole life. Right. Like all of that is layered in and they're so um they're so generous with each other as actors. Mm -hmm. And I I I think I'm continually impressed by his vulnerability in the whole movie, but in that scene in particular. Um, because the way the I imagine the way the character looks on page, that's that's probably not there in the writing. Probably, yeah. What did you think about the I mean like every Every aspect, I actually kind of, it's funny, I had completely forgotten about the slight subplot, which seems so important in retrospect of the other woman in town, I forget her name, Lucy Delaney, is it? Lucy, yeah. Who, who had an affair that was kind of well-known around town, and it just did such a nice job of, like, showing how she was ostracized, and Robert Kincaid picking up on that and really asking Francesca, is are you sure you want to do this? Like, look at what's happening in your own town to the other person that has, you know, had yeah. an affair. You want to put yourself in, at risk here. Um, I, I really thought that that was a clever, because that didn't need to be in there, but by having that in there, it's, you know, it's just like, again, perfectly layered. Yeah, and I don't, 
I really don't remember, but I don't, I don't recall that being in the book, but I'm not sure. Maybe one of our listeners has read the book more recently and can tell us, but I, I don't think it is. Something about that too makes Meryl Streep's character so identifiable because, you know, after she has the affair, she goes out of her way. She chooses to stay with her husband and her kids and let Robert Kincaid go. And she goes out of her way to, I think, bake a cake and go over to Lucy's house and be a friend to her because I, she clearly like understands what she's going through at that point. And they develop a really close friendship and are basically inseparable for the rest of their adult lives as friends. And something about that makes Meryl Streep even more identifiable to me as a, as, as a human being, right? Like there's a, I think it puts, it takes her outside of just the affair, which is the bubble she's in for the whole film, essentially in the farmhouse and with Clint Eastwood and puts her in social context in a way that we can see, we can see her values at play outside of that arena. If, if I'm articulating that well, it it helps, it helps make her identifiable and it, it makes you love her more. It gives her an opportunity to do yet another accent. She's Italian in this one. It's a great accent too. It is. It's subtle. It's been like, she's managed to Americanize it. Like you can tell she's an Italian woman who's been living in Iowa for 30 years and it's like, you know, or like 20. <laughs> um, yeah. I will, I will say my, the only thing I don't like about this movie is actually the framing device Mm. Um, with the kids finding her. It's not that I would change it because I understand why it's there and it does have emotional weight. It's just rhythmically every time we cut back to them, it just, for me, it really stalls the film and I can't wait I really can't wait to get back to Clint and Meryl because they're so freaking compelling. And then it's like, it's like a roadblock and I have to watch the siblings interact and talk about it before we go back to them. And I don't, I don't, I don't like it. I'm not sure there's a fix. I'm not sure without it, it would have been a better film. I just, a testament to Clint and Meryl more than anything. Right. And I think, I think part of it too is like, there is this sort of odd thing that, I don't know, it's kind of icky territory with the male character with the son, because like, he's so hung up on this, like mother love stuff. It's really kind of odd. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it feels, it feels a little, you know what it is. Um, It's, it's a tad cliche, it's it's very surface level like those parts of the film feel quite shallow compared to the like the depths of emotion we get into in the Clint and Merrill scenes and so it feels almost trivial and maybe that's because we don't see the kids connection with their mother ever right. especially as adults and so we don't have the emotional foundation to really invest in what they're discovering that their mother went through. It's like, ugh. I think I th- maybe it would have worked better in hindsight, you know, if it had been a full framing device where we don't continue to cut back and forth, but we have a longer stretch. 
because I do like the narration. I, yeah. I do like the journal. I like Meryl Streep. There's something quite soothing about her voice. There's, it has Clint Eastwood all over it, right? Like, you know how quiet he is on set. His music is quite thoughtful and quiet. The narration is, is quiet. It's very thoughtful. And so um, I like that part of it. I think I would just have preferred, like, we have the kids showing up at the beginning. We get the narration. We know they're reading it. And in the end, we wrap it up. <laughs> yeah. I'm with you. I, I totally see that because, you know, bottom line is I'm not sure that I care all that much about like the kids. I mean, this sounds not nice to say, but like, I don't really care about the kids' marriages. You know what I mean? No. Like, I, it's not that important to the film. I get, I get what they're trying to do and they're trying to like point out the parallels or whatever. I do think the kids being in there in that, in that framing device does make the ending more powerful, you know, with, with them asking you know spreading the ashes that that really works for me but it comes at the expense of kind of the awkwardness of the first 15 minutes or so of the movie because there is that really strange like I I think just it's 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 a funny line reading but do you remember the scene where it's again right at the very beginning so it's like the two kids come to the farmhouse in Iowa to go through their the dad has died some time ago but now the mother has died and so they're just going through her stuff and the lawyer is there and the son's wife is there. So it's just the four of them. And so he comes in and he says to the lawyer and his wife, it's almost like something out of a sitcom. He goes like, hey, uh, maybe we could go through this stuff without you guys being here. He goes, uh, we don't want to hold you up or anything. And it's like this one, it's this one very strange reading because it's almost like he's trying really hard to telegraph to the audience what we need to know which is that he does not want these two to find out the information that they've just discovered but also he didn't need to work that hard like we get it <laughs> it's a really funny line reading and i get the sense that like with the stuff with the kids like you can see you can see that they were trying to create an independent narrative for the film like almost something that could stand alone without the Marilyn Clint so that it had some because they really are the story arc right like you can tell the son and his wife don't have like the deepest of connections she's got a line where she's like did she mention me right <laughs> and and they're, so they're quite unlikable almost and then you know that the daughter is in a bad marriage and they're like sort of irritated that they have to be there and go through things. And so really you establish that. And then they have this journey that by reading, reading their mother's journals about this affair and this connection and her choices that they have, have somehow found some greater authenticity in themselves and are going to live better lives. Right. So that's, that's really the arc of the film, but I, I, it doesn't, it does just doesn't quite work because like you said, we don't, we don't really care because they're not very likable in the beginning. So you don't right. really care about them. Right. And you just kind of want to like push them away so that you can go watch the good stuff. Right. Clint did say in the documentary that they shot this basically, well, it, within, within one framework, he basically said they shot the, the Merrill stuff, the 1965 movie first, and then, you know, Merrill was sent home, and then they shot the, what basically felt like another movie with, yeah. with current stuff, because it was, you know, 
And uh, Annie Corley, I think is is her name. She plays the adult daughter. And I, I actually really grew to like her as the movie went on. I like um, her a lot. Yeah, she's great. She uh, was saying that the like her first day on set, they're being driven to the set, to the farmhouse. And um, all of a sudden they looked up and Meryl Streep was there. And Meryl Streep was like, you know, stop that band, stop that band. I want to meet my daughter. And <laughs> knocked on the door, gave her a hug, you know, like talked to her for a minute and then was gone, like left the set and was gone forever from the movie. But she made a point out of being there and um, like welcoming them to the set, which I thought was very nice, but it also was kind of effective in the sense they, Annie Corley said, because it was like, the mother, they had some connection to her, you know, they had some connection to this character. And then it was in fact, like she was gone. She was just gone. And of course, Meryl Streep is somebody that she idolized and somebody that she didn't think she would actually get to meet necessarily, or certainly work with. And uh, so I don't know, I thought that was kind of cool. But Clint Eastwood also said that within obviously the, the two frameworks of the two separate movies that they basically shot in sequence, which is pretty rare for a movie. Oh, but, that's cool. For a movie like this, you can 100% do that because there's not that much, you know, schedule. Right, you're not tied to locations. Yeah. Right. Got the farmhouse. Which, speaking of that farmhouse, too, I found this interesting, too. They spent a long time looking for the right one. And that farmhouse, when they found it, was had been abandoned for, like, 20 years. It was like there were raccoons living inside of it. And, like, it was just, like, completely trashed. They had to, like, kind of but it had the perfect look to it. And so they had to kind of like redo the, uh, the entire inner. Oh, that's amazing. That's a, that's a neat. So it really was their farmhouse. Yeah. They didn't. That's cool. Yeah. I love it, that. It does say in the IMDb trivia for this film, I haven't verified any of this, but it said that there was some arson at that, both at that site and at some of the covered bridges in town where they filmed this. Really? Um, years later so it's hard like if you wanted to like track down these locations you basically can't anymore because somebody had burned them down i don't know who or why and i don't even know if that's true it's just one of those things that's in that trivia so yeah odd interesting odd if true but yeah uh, well i think you mentioned your favorite scene right mm-hmm. uh, i i have to say my favorite part of this movie is kind of the very beginning of them. Like, I love her tentativeness when they first meet. Oh, when he drives up to the house to ask for directions and she's she's so sweetly awkward with him. Oh, it's so good. She's, it's so good because I, I love the playing of the, like, you can tell she, she like takes one step in a certain direction and says, I can take you there. But then like, feels like, oh, that was, it's 1965. I'm not supposed to say that. So she walks back and, says you know i can come with you or give you directions i don't care whatever you want i don't care (laughs) and that like completely walks it back and then actually the scene you know when they're like all of that when they're first getting to know each other that drive to that to the bridge the scene at the bridge to like all that early stuff to me love it it's so good basically every scene with them is right is really stunning it's so Uh, so good when she um when she gets the when she gets the guts to go to go put the note on the bridge and he calls her and it's like she's so excited he's calling and he's just he's just so genuine with her I think that 
I think that's one of the things that I love about it is like, she's, she's taking these risks sort of outside of herself. Like she, she can't really, she doesn't understand why she's doing it, but she's taking these risks to contact him. And he's just so genuine and open and kind with her. Yeah. And she gets so excited too. It's like, you know, she'll, she'll like exclaim, like she'll put her, her hands in the air, like, yes, yes, yes. But you know, like also like totally trying to stay within control and not let herself go there. You know, do you know what's also astounding is, um, you know, Meryl Streep's famous for changing her hair for films and her hair is just dark brown for this. But other than that, there's not a major change. This is one of the movies where there are moments for me where she is not Meryl Streep. She is Francesca that I don't see Meryl Streep when I'm watching her. And she is fully, fully immersed in that character and showing me somebody else and i mean there's it's it's genius she's amazing yeah yeah that's a good segue actually to talking about um one of the one of the things that they mentioned was that the studio had been looking so clint was about 65 or so at the time and um you know he had obviously been attached for a long time as we talked about the studio originally wanted somebody in their thirties. They had a list of people. And um, I really think that would have changed things. Don't you? I mean, like you need somebody, Meryl was about 45, which is about, and she was playing a 45 year old, but you need somebody who's been married 20 years. You don't need somebody who's like in their thirties, you know? It wouldn't, I just don't understand how it would have worked at all. Yeah. I, I don't have to explain that. Everybody understands why that wouldn't work. It's ridiculous is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> But so on the Wikipedia page, although it, none of all of these people are roughly Meryl's age, so this is kind of a contradiction because mm-hmm. eventually maybe they realized that was too young or something. But it said um, Isabella Rossellini was a strong contender for the role, um, and Angelica Houston, Jessica Lange, Mary McDonnell, Cher, and Susan Sarandon were also considered. But but Clint had really kind of strongly suggested Meryl Streep from the very beginning and kind of fought for her pretty hard. Yeah, that makes sense. And listen, I mean, I sort of, Isabella Rossellini is essentially low hanging fruit because she is Italian. Like, it's like, oh, let's cast the one Italian actress we know. Not that she probably would have, she probably would have been great, but I don't think I've ever seen her in anything like this. Right. I mean, I think any of them would have been, I could see Angelica Houston. I could see Jessica Lange. I could see Mary McDonald. I sure would be, sure would have been interesting. I, I think she could have done it. It definitely would have been again, very different for her. We have not seen her in that kind of role. Susan Sarandon could have done it for sure. Like any of them would have been fine, but I think there's no question that there's a certain. Yeah. You don't tend to see that level of vulnerability from, from Angelica Houston or share really not that i don't think they're capable yeah. it would have been interesting i'm not sure i can yeah. quite envision it the other thing that i thought was interesting about this is he filmed this in 36 days there was a 52-day production schedule and on day 36 he called <laughs> kathleen kennedy and was like i think i'm done and she assumed for the day and he was like no i think i'm done with the movie <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing that's probably the only time that's ever happened in the history yeah. of filmmaking <laughs> and so she she was like okay oh, Hey, and so she said, I immediately got on a plane and went to the set so I could at least be there for the rap party. <laughs> <It was> like, <laughs> priorities, I guess. Um, 
but you know, they said he just, he's like, I mean, that's very well known about Quentin and his other movies too, that he doesn't do a lot of takes. He'll do a couple takes and feels like we got it. Okay, that's great. And Meryl said he had a standing four o'clock uh, tea time every day. And she said most days he made it there. <laughs> you know, it was relatively rare that he didn't make that tea time. So it just seems like a really lovely set to be on, you know? I have heard that about his films, that he is so soft-spoken, never raises his voice, um, really whispers right. when, when a shot, <laughs> to start a shot. Um, yeah, I've heard, I've heard great things. I was telling you, this is a good time to mention this, I was telling you before we started recording that I got to meet Clint Eastwood. I went to, I went to high school in Northern California, up by where he lives in Carmel, and um, volunteered to to work some event that was taking place in in Carmel. It was I think it was a land preservation event of some kind. I truly don't remember. And he he was there with his uh, most recent wife. Although I think they've they've split. But I I got to meet him and talk to him for a little bit and 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 take a photo. So I my little teenage self has a photo with Clint. That's amazing. Lovely. That's a good. That's a good one to have. Yeah, picture. right? Right? I need to track down that picture. I'll send it to you. <laughs> yeah, please do. I, I put on my Facebook thing the other day after I watched Nomadland. Um, when I met Frances McDormand, I think I've told this story, but when I met Frances McDormand and I asked her for a picture and instead her response was to grab my cheeks, say, you are so cute and walk away, <laughs> which I guess <laughs> was a no to the picture. But I kind of feel like that's a more, that's like a better one of Francis McDormand encounter to be like, you know, totally. That's an amazing story. <laughs> uh, there, there are some of those good ones. Clint, Clint qualifies. I still would love a picture with Francis McDormand. You want a picture with Francis McDormand, although that is good. There are certain ones who, yeah, you want that. That's really. It would be, it would be better it. if you had a picture of Francis McDormand pinching your teeth. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> gotta be quick maybe somebody out there happened to catch that moment and can send yeah. it <laughs> i have to say too that my i don't know if i've talked about this on here surely i have and one of our listeners can can tell me but my favorite movie of all time and it has not wavered since the day i saw it is million dollar baby really yes oh wow yeah. and i keep i keep revisiting that and i'm like you know, maybe it was a phase because it's pretty dark. And like, I've gone back to it. I've and every time I watch it, I'm like, nope, nope, this is it. It is the for me. Everyone's like, this is so depressing. Why is this your favorite movie? But to me, it is the most genuine, heartfelt love story between two utterly lost souls. And I like, I always go back to that. And his music. And the music for this is quite similar because he composed it, but the music for Million Dollar Baby is just like uh, everything about that movie. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Clint, Clint, Clint takes the award for my favorite movie. And I've seen a lot of movies. Yeah. And wow. I have a lot of, I have a lot of favorites, but that takes number one. Interesting. Yeah. I, I don't think I knew that. I don't think you have talked about that. Yeah. Have I ever told you the one time I ever watched that movie, what happened? I feel like you have, but I don't remember. Tell me. I saw it in the theater and there was the scene where she breaks her nose and I passed out. I was really, it like I, 
I get queasy about medical stuff and I pass yeah. out seizure. Oh my sack. Yeah. It's only happened two or three times. And that was the last time it happened. And that was almost 20 years ago now. So, um, you know, it's been a while since that has happened, but I get, it's like my brain shuts down when it can't handle what it's seen. And that was one of those moments. And it's funny because, so I have not revisited that movie. I don't blame you. (laughs) I remember it being, but I mean, I remember it it, when that, well, I guess I won't even talk about it at length, but um, I remember still enjoying the movie in spite of everything that happened. I think a big thing for me too, I, I don't remember when it came out. It's been some time ago, but a big thing for me is that especially then so much of the films that were coming out, women are mothers, girlfriends, wives, uh, daughters. It's, it's always about who they are in relationship to men. And I couldn't identify it verbally then. Like I didn't have, I didn't have the skill set of the language and we aren't, obviously we weren't where we are today in terms of our understanding of these things, but that, that film is not that right. This, this woman has a dream of being a a boxer and she's going to do it come hell or high water. And she doesn't care that she's 30 and she she has no one. And this film is really, uh, really about her. And that, that was powerful for me. Um, yeah, when, 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 when Clint does make movies that, that focus on women, it's pretty spectacular. I agree. (laughs) I agree. I also, Bridges of Madison County being one of them. Right, exactly. Yeah, there are yeah. parallels. Yeah. Yeah. The Mule, by the way, if you haven't watched The Mule, I think that is one of his most recent ones, maybe his most recent one. He's so good in that one, too, which Diane Weiss also plays his um, ex wife in that. She's quite good in that, too, although a very small role, but really, really, really good. A movie that I like a whole lot. It's not obviously a, a female protagonist, and now he is a protagonist, but. Um, yeah, anyway, that's really good and worth seeking out too. Yeah, um, I will definitely watch it. In terms of this one, some of the other stuff that we talk about, um, the budget for this was 22 million, box office was 182 million. This was a verified hit. This was a pretty big deal movie um, at the time. It was up for... It, it was up for two Golden Globes. It was up for Best Motion Picture Drama, which it lost to Sense and Sensibility, out of all things. Um, the, the five nominees that year were Bridges of Madison County, Leaving Las Vegas, Braveheart, Apollo 13, and Sense and Sensibility, uh, which ended up being the winner. And uh, Meryl lost the Best Performance in a Motion Picture Drama at the Golden Globes to Sharon Stone from Casino. Um, at the Academy Awards, it was only nominated for Meryl for Best Performance, which she lost to Susan Sarandon. It was interesting because it was the same five nominees that year uh, for the Golden Globes and the Academy Awards, which it seems like that would happen a lot, but it actually doesn't really happen that often. Yeah. But the nominees were Sharon Stone for Casino, Susan Sarandon for Dead Man Walking, Elizabeth Chu for Leaving Las Vegas, Emma Thompson for Sense and Sensibility, and Meryl for this so again, Sharon Stone won at the Golden Globes and Susan Sarandon won at the Oscars. I recall Elizabeth Shue winning something. Did she not? Um, I Not that I know of. Maybe she won at like the Screen Actors Guild or something, but she didn't win for... Did she Nicolas win. Cage win? Yes. Yeah, that's what I remember. Yeah. Um, 
it is interesting looking back on it. I think we've probably talked about, it. I feel like I maybe talked to Erin in, in my interview with her about this, but um, Susan Sarandon had before this year made some quotes about Meryl and kind of not, not very nice quotes saying like, you know, she was taking everything and, you know, it would be great if there was roles for anybody besides Meryl Streep. And, um, and it was interesting to me, if you go to the YouTube of, of Susan Sarandon winning, Meryl is really ecstatic for Susan Sarandon, like really one of those joyful, it's kind of like when Cher won, she like seems- She's got the big brown satin dress, right? That sounds right, yeah. Yeah, I remember that. But she like really is kind of over the top ecstatic for Susan Sarandon. I just thought that was interesting that she, you know, could- So kind. Yes, exactly. After somebody's kind of like, not super trashed you, it wasn't really, I mean, I guess you could see it a different way, but it's not the most kind-hearted thing. Susan Sarandon has a tendency to do that. I got to say my my love of Susan Sarandon as a person has not, uh, over the last <laughs> few years, has taken a few hits. She's a great well, actor. And it's funny, too, because, I mean, granted, this was later, but Susan Sarandon has made some iconic movies. I mean, she has not suffered in her career. Right. I mean, I say that I'm not behind closed doors and getting crap scripts and feeling like my career might go down the toilet at any moment. So <clears throat> I get it. But I think there's such a scarcity mindset for artists, particularly actors, because you just, the industry is so tough. And it sounds like that was her frame of mind when she was saying that stuff. It's unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, we'll we'll let that be. I won't go any more into that one. Uh, I'm trying to look to see real quick to see the IMDb rating. Okay, this is a 7.6 on IMDb, which is tied. The only other Marvel movie with that rating is Sophie's Choice. So that's pretty good company. Um, okay. I would say this is definitely top two thirds. The one of the ones above this are Big Little Lies, Angels in America, Deer Hunter, Holocaust, which is still so strangely high. Uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox, Manhattan, Kramer versus Kramer, Little Women, and Adaptation. Those are the ones, that, and I won't read all the ones below it because there's a lot more below it. But um, so you know, it's definitely got a pretty good. It, I think it's like ninety percent on the Rotten Tomatoes website, something like that, and you know the Cinema Score, whatever that is, is like an A minus, uh, you know, on the F to A. So quite well received overall as a film. Awesome. Yeah. Anything else you want to say about this one? Just go watch it. Seriously. Like if you're on the fence about it and you're like, I'm like Megan, I'm not in my fifties. Like I get it. Cause <laughs> I have, I, it has taken me like what, 10 years to revisit it because even after I saw it, you have this, like my, you have this mindset about it. It's very interesting. Right. And I, and then I go to watch it and it's just utterly riveting their connection and and their performances are a thing of beauty that don't happen very often. I agree. So go watch it. Go watch it, people. Yeah. Go Where does it rank for you? Good question. That was a good transition there. Um, I actually, <laughs> I haven't officially put it in, but I was thinking about this because I, I kind of want this one to crack my top 10. My, my problem here is that I love all the ones in my top 10. So this might go in at slot 11 because um, my Cry in the Dark is number nine. Is Just, this for performance but, or film? Oh, sorry, performance. Okay. Um, 
A Cry in the Dark is nine and Adaptation is 10. I feel like this might slot just underneath that above Kramer versus Kramer. I wanted it to crack the top 10, but I think it's gonna go in at 11, which is still pretty good. This is movie 45. So 11 is pretty good. In terms of the films, it's a little bit trickier. Um, I think I'm gonna put it at maybe 13 or so. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna slot this one in officially yet, but I, I think yeah. about it. What about you? It, it actually ranks much higher for me. So okay. I, oh, this is tough to say out loud. I, I think it's my favorite performance of hers. Really? Wow. Yeah. That's tough though, because my top five are so killer. Like Sophie's Choice, The Post, Julie and Julia, A Cry in the Dark. And I still am like, gonna die on my Julie and Julia hill that that's one of her greatest performances of all time because I love it. I agree with um, you. Yeah, there was something so transformative about this performance in, in, a, in a non-theatrical way. Like some, like some, sometimes Meryl can be quite theatrical with her performances and we've talked right. about it before. Um, it doesn't make them any less good, but you can, you can see the work. Right. I just can't, I can't see the work in this. She's so natural in this. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I find it astounding. So I put it at number one above Sophie's Choice for performances. Wow. Was now you're coming in hot there. Wow. Okay. I am. I'm I am. And I think it. it's because of her experience and her age coming into it. There's more of an ease to it than there was in Sophie's Choice, even though she's a freaking genius in Sophie's Choice. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like as like, aren't we just supposed to put Sophie's Choice at number one? Maybe that's I the problem. Know. Maybe that's the problem is we've been trained to believe that. But I mean, it's an astonishing performance. I still say, I'm not sure I've ever seen a better performance on film than her performance in Sophie's Choice. That's my big thing here. You're saying this is this is your number one is your big thing. This is uh, Sophie's yeah. Choice. That's how I feel about it is like from a technical perspective. I think that's the best performance I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, I, I, I can totally see that. Yeah, it's a toss up. They're running really close. And I think, it, I think maybe I put it at number one by virtue of the script, right? Because it's just, sure. because we get to just see more of her emotional inner life. Right. In, like it is the camera on Meryl. <laughs> right, well, and I, and I, I'm not, I'm not, I, I probably sounds like I'm trying to talk you out of putting this. No, 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 no. I'm really contemplating this because I have a tough time because I feel the same way about Sophie's Choice. You do. It's like, it's just, it's a, it's a masterful. It's stunning. It's stunning. Well, this is, this is where the dual lists are interesting because I think mm -hmm. there are, pro I mean, we talked at length about the issues with Sophie's Choice. Um, and I think as a film, it's a, it's an excellent film. It's a, you know, for sure, incredible film, but it's also slightly more problematic than this one is as a film, not the performance, but as a film, there's a little bit more to, to nitpick in Sophie's Choice than there is in Riches of Madison County. Yeah, yeah, I totally, yeah. Yeah, and I've, I've put it at number three for films. Okay, well. So it's under the hours and, and Little Women. That is. It's so funny because I look at my list and I'm like, why did I put that there? And I had a reason at the time, but now I don't, really <laughs> I like, I feel compelled to go back and watch everything we've watched already. So I can be like, what, did I do this right? Did I put this in the right spot? You know what I think it is? I think Clint Eastwood's 
Clint Eastwood's style of storytelling, obviously, like because Million Dollar Baby is my favorite film, his style of sto storytelling resonates with me in a way that I feel so I feel so connected to the story. Um, and so it, I mean, I'm not surprised it's in my top five on both on both film and because he's just so good. And and I didn't put it number one because of I would have, but for those the the scenes with the kids and it kind of throws off the film a little bit. Yeah. Whereas the hours is like as a film, pretty spectacular beginning to yeah. end. Yeah, I'm with you on that too. Yeah, two things. One, I would love your full list at some point. I have. I know. I still have. I have several movies that I have not stuck on there, like the past five. <laughs> so I will do that. The other is like looking at all of these too. Um, I don't know. It is. It is at that point where it's sort of. It's hard to remember the subtle details. You know. Yeah, we For may summer. have to do a revisit on, I don't know, like we, we, we need to stay focused and get through the whole filmography, but like I feel so compelled to revisit our top tens on both lists. Adaptation is one that I wouldn't, you know, that I would like to revisit at some point. I mean, sometimes I just watch, you know, one of her movies for fun, of course, but like, you, you know, there are some of these little things that you go, uh, that you kind of wonder about in the, in the scheme of things. And, uh, you know, then you hear from people, we've gotten such a barrage uh, in a positive way of like encounters with people who've written us things in various formats. And it's always interesting hearing from other people what their favorite movies are. And I've been particularly surprised lately because it's been a lot of things that I wouldn't have expected. Some of the usual suspects are there, you know, Devil Wears Prada is always popular. And there are a couple other ones that like tend to show up. Bridges of Madison County, I think is actually a, one of a lot of people's favorite performances, but um, there's some really interesting ones that people are really attached to. And I think you and I both have one of those in Postcards from the Edge that, you know, a typical Maryland may not love as much as we do, but everybody's kind of got their version of that, you know? Yeah, like I have a, you know, I've got that attachment to Out of Africa just because that was one of the movies that I grew up with my mom watching all the time. So yeah, we, right. we all have them. There's like, there's definitely an emotional connection to them. Right, yeah. Um, cool. All right. Shall we do uh, our six degrees or movies we wish Meryl was in? Let's do Meryl's we wish Meryl's we wish movies were in. I was thinking about Fargo ah. because you mentioned Francis McDormand. Yeah. yeah, she would have been, I mean, Frances McDormand's a genius, let's not lie, but Meryl would have been funny. She would have been good. Yeah, absolutely. I'm trying to, I'm trying to look real quick. I have one kind of in mind, although I don't feel like it's a great one. But the more we talk about this, the more I'm wondering why she never worked with Clint Eastwood again. I'm looking through his movies, wondering if there was another, like one that would Like an made. opportunity. Yeah. But you know what? His movies after this are not all that like didn't have great roles for females, for right. women. I'm looking at his directing ones. Maybe Richard Jewell, um, the Kathy Bates role. She would have been interesting in that for sure. Oh, yeah. The one I had originally, because it, I was, again, I keep, I feel like I keep going to this well a lot too, is because we were just talking about Susan Sarandon, but I was thinking about like some of her more out there choices. 
And this was a movie that was not very well received. So in some ways, I guess it's probably a good thing. But did you ever see the Melissa McCarthy movie, Tammy? Is Jason Bateman in that? No, I know which one you're thinking of though, because they were in a movie called Identity Thief together. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Um, No, I haven't seen it, but I I know what it is. Because Susan Sarandon plays her grandma. Gotcha. Uh, I can't remember who plays her mom in that one, but Susan Sarandon plays her grandma. And I mean, it would just, would it, it's silly. I actually like it a lot more than um, than a lot of people do. Actually, Kathy Bates is in that one too. There's a scene where it's like Kathy Bates and Susan Sarandon getting high on the beach. It would have been great fun to see Kathy Bates and Meryl Streep getting high on the beach. <laughs> yeah, it totally would have. That'd be great. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's maybe not the greatest movie that's ever been made, but I think it's fun. <laughs> I like it a lot. So anyway, what about our six degrees person was Vince Vaughn. Were you able to yeah. connect Vince Vaughn? I had to cheat. Okay. I had to cheat. I had to look it up. But Four Christmases with Reese Witherspoon. Although I don't think I can, I'm trying to think of a feature film because they're connected through television. Oh, they were in, they were in a movie together too. They did rendition together. Oh yeah, there you go. Thanks for helping uh, me along there. Yeah, not to jump in. <laughs> no, 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 that's serious. <laughs> that wasn't sarcastic. That was legit. The <laughs> uh, I didn't spend a lot of time with this one. I actually figured Vince Vaughn probably has a lot of connections, and I thought of one right away, and I just kind of, like, stopped. I didn't do the five connections that sometimes I do. The first one, for whatever reason, that came up was uh, the sequel to Jurassic Park, Lost World, that Vince Vaughn was in, and Julia Moore is also in that connection. Oh, yeah. I have never I, seen that. Oh, really? I had no idea he was in it. No. Yeah. I'm obsessed with the first Jurassic Park, and I don't care about the others. <laughs> have you seen all of the rest of them? Is that the only one you haven't seen? I saw the second one of the newest iteration with Chris Pratt. So the newest one. Yeah, I saw scenes from The Lost World. That's the first one with Chris Pratt, right? Yeah. Lost no, World. Lost World is the original sequel. The Lost mm. World is the second one. What's the one? What's the first one with Chris Pratt? <laughs> Um, I forget which one is which. There, one of them is called Fallen Kingdom or something. Yeah. I was so offended by the way they characterize Bryce Dallas Howard as like a harsh, ignorant, like businesswoman who like wore stiletto heel. Like I was just so annoyed with the characterization. And then by the end of the movie, you know, she's wearing a tank top and has flowy hair and has like, seeing the error of her way i'm just like no <laughs> i am not on board for this i would have loved a role reversal where chris platt plays her character and she plays the chris pratt character that i would have been on board for that's the only other jurassic park i've seen and i'm like meh <laughs> okay fair enough. fair enough yeah it looks like jurassic world was the like yes. reboot. there we go and then jurassic world fallen kingdom is the newest one okay let me give you the the low down on the original trilogy original okay. movie perfect nothing wrong perfect movie beginning to end every frame exactly correct perfect second movie i think the problem was the first movie was a perfect movie and so everybody expected the second one to be literally perfect too i think if you know it's not perfect it's a perfectly fine movie it's not as good 
Um, but it's still directed by Steven Spielberg. It still has incredible production values. It's still good. The third yeah. one, the third one to me is the outlier and the one that has taken me the longest to like, like come to terms with because the third one, not Steven Spielberg, it's just like they decided to have a lot of fun. But the tone of that is very different from the first two movies, you know? Like it tries to be funny. It tries to be like, not in the like Jeff Goldblum, like sarcastic way. It tries to be like funny, you know? And just different, you know? And then the original, the or sorry, the like follow-up trilogy, which we're still waiting the the last one on is a very different thing. Um, but those original three, I you should you should watch The Lost World because it's it's worth okay. checking out. I will. And I really appreciate and love that on our podcast episode about Bridges of Madison County, we do um, a somewhat deep dive on the <laughs> Jurassic Park series. This is so great. This is why I, this is why I love where, movies. That's where we go. <laughs> so um, so uh, oh, I wanted to mention too that um, I also fairly recently, like within the last couple of months, probably since we last talked, I did for some reason or another watch the basically shot for shot remake of Psycho that Gus Van Sant did in the oh, very yeah. like, which Vince Vaughn and Julianne Moore were all also both in. So that that one is the connection as well. Um, I still don't really understand the point of that one, but it's fun in its own way, you know. Has, has Brad Pitt has Brad Pitt and Meryl Streep ever been in a movie together? No. No, but they're remember that they're both attached to that movie. Yeah. So yeah. there's Although I don't, I don't think that's officially at Meryl attached. I think it's still just got it conjecture. And actually, that's one of those that Emma Stone has since left that project. So a lot could change there. Who knows? Okay. Um, we should mention that we got a lovely email from somebody named Gemma. I think yes. she's she's from Wales, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, it's very we exciting. Love- we have an international audience, Zach. This is very <laughs> exciting for me. <laughs> it is, yes it was it was lovely we've gotten a lot of correspondence lately but that was a particularly nice letter uh and Meryl and I both thought so we both kind of texted about how sweet we thought it was I just wanted to give her a shout out but she also is the first person who played Alon she played the Vince Vaughn Six Degrees with us and her connection which I don't know if I would have gotten there actually was Wedding Crashers uh which had Christopher Walken in uh and dear such Hunter's a good there. connection yeah that is a- I've seen that. I've seen Wedding Crashers. I just don't, I, for whatever reason, it's not where my mind went to with Vince Vaughn, which is funny because that's one of his bigger hits. But. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't think of it either. The first thing I thought of was Mr. and Mrs. Smith, but then I couldn't make a connection off of it. So I was like, well, oh, you know what? Isn't Angela, is Angela Bassett in, or just Carrie Washington? In what? I feel like, Ange- I feel like Angela, Miss, Miss, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Oh, she's the voice. Yeah, she's the voice. Yeah. Um, This, I can't believe this. This reminds me of something else that I watched since Wild Mountain Time. You watched it? I totally watched it. Okay, be real. Give it to me straight. What did you think? I liked it. I did not (laughs) like it as much as you liked it. (laughs) I just, every time, every time he says, I believe that I'm a honeybee. I die. <laughs> I okay. So here's here's the thing that I I went. Oh shit! I, we're in for it here. 
this movie starts with Christopher Walken's narration. And he says, hi, I'm whatever his name is. And then his next line is, I'm dead. And I went, <laughs> no, it's oh, so, it's bad. <laughs> the narration, and then they don't really follow through with that. Yeah, no, the framing, the framing of it is a mess. <laughs> I, I have to say, within the first 15 seconds of this movie, I went, oh shit, this is going to be rough. <laughs> It is a ride. <laughs> it is a ride. I love it so much though. That scene, that that scene that sort of culminates <laughs> everything. It's like it's like a 20, 30 minute scene in her house. Mm-hmm. It's very much from the stage play, you can tell. The the dialogue, I just can't, I can't get over. I love the dialogue in this movie. <laughs> I find it hilarious. It taps into like my weird Irish humor. Like I just love it. <laughs> it's it is one of the quirkier movies I've ever seen. I don't mean that in a bad way. It's, yeah. it's unquestionably quirky. Um, so quirky. It. I don't know. I mean, yeah. I I I came into it because because I know how how fond of it you are, and I knew I wouldn't like it as much. I you know I didn't have like unreasonable expectations on it, but. I thought it was perfectly fine. I would like to watch it again. I feel like it's one of those movies that this might be painful to hear, but it didn't come. I kind of checked out after a while. It didn't completely stay. I wasn't as I should have been, you know, I get that. But I also didn't, I I'm not like, uh, I, I'm not uh, saying kinder things. And I really mean just to appease you either. I, I definitely liked the movie. I just didn't love it probably. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, clearly you are of the, I think you're being quite generous. Like most people really hated this movie. And I've, I've, I've re, I have rewatched it since again. Oh I've seen God. it like six or seven times now. I still love it. <laughs> there is something about the quirky, um, heightened language of of the dialogue and the humor that just resonates with me as a as a as a person like it just taps into my my frequency of weird (laughs) that it works for me but I totally understand that it may not work for everybody sure yeah Yeah. well I it's (laughs) I'm glad you watched it though I did I, I saw it at my library and I thought, oh, now's the time to go for this one here. So yes, I did. And like I said, I probably would have picked it up eventually either way. You know what I mean? Like it was interesting enough to me that I probably would have, but um, I made sure to watch it because <laughs> because of your recommendation. And I, I, I don't know, I, it might've taken me a little bit longer to get to it otherwise. So that's good. Um, yeah, yeah, nice. Well, Oscar nominations are announced on Monday. I don't think we'll have anything to report, probably. <laughs> no. uh, it's not out of the realm of possibility, but it's in the incredibly unlikely category at this point. Um, yeah. No, no special bonus episode coming at you to discuss the you know surprise nomination, most likely. Um, otherwise, we've decided on our probable next movie, which is... Evening from 2007, mm-hmm. which has a smorgasbord of amazing actors in it. Claire Danes, mm-hmm. Glenn Close, Meryl's Vanessa, daughter. Yeah, Vanessa Redgrave, too. Vanessa Redgrave, Tony Collette. Yep. Yeah. Claire Danes, did you say that? Yeah. 
Yeah, Patrick Wilson, Hugh Dancy. Yeah, this is the movie I could have been an extra in if I'd have just been on my game a little bit better than I was. But um, yeah, cool. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. And uh, we'll be back soon. Bye. That's all.